so this is not going to be too long, but I'm just going to lay the foundation, okay, for what we're talking about. Um, and, you know, actually it applies to what we were, what we mentioned earlier. And, uh, you know, when we talk about God, uh, we are, there are certain aspects of God we will never participate in or partake of. So we have to be very clear about that. So when we say, when we talk about what we are becoming, we need to be very clear about what we are not becoming, what we will never become. So I'm just going to mention these very, very briefly. Yeah. Um, and so this is worth, I think, everyone just being clear about. Okay. So first of all, we will never be omnificent. What does that mean? It means we will never be able to create anything. Okay. God is the one who creates. Okay. That's not something we're going to be able to do. All right. God is omnificent. Um, we will never be omniscient. That means we will not be all knowing. Okay. God is omniscient. Okay. When we talk about what, what we are becoming, we are not talking about that. We will also never be omnipresent. You know, all of us can have a relationship with the Lord at the exact same time, which is awesome. Okay. But we're not going to, we're not talking about becoming God in that respect. Uh, we will never be omnipotent. Okay. God is all powerful. That's not what we're talking about. Okay. Uh, we will never, ever, ever be an object of worship. Okay, we're not talking about becoming an object of worship. Actually, uh, if you look at Isaiah 14, that is what Satan wanted. Satan actually wanted to become an object of worship. He wanted to be like the Most High. That's his desire. He, he wants worship. Okay, that, that's not what we're talking about when we talk about what we are becoming. All right, we will never be worshipped. We will, we worship God. That is what we do. Okay. Actually, the Antichrist, who will ultimately embody Satan at the end of the age, he will set up, he, that's what he's all about. He will be all about being worshipped. So we're just not on the same pathway. All right. And we will never be part of the Godhead. Okay, we're never going to be part of God in his in that respect regarding his uh, regarding his essence. It's just not going to happen. What we are so that okay. So this is referring to God in his incommunicable attributes. Okay, these attributes will never be communicated to us. All right, uh, but. God does have communicable attributes. There are attributes of God that we can participate in, that we need to participate in, and that God wants us to participate in. And so in respect to these attributes, we are becoming the same as he is. Okay, but just remember and, and, and bear this as a banner before you that when we are talking about becoming the same, 
as he is. We are not talking about the incommunicable attributes. And we're, we just have to emphasize this again and again, because when uh, this is one of the big things, as soon as I make the statement like Athanasius did in the fourth century, that God became man to make man God, you know, and like, if you remember last, last, uh, last week, not only Athanasius, but Martin Luther and C.S. Lewis. Okay. Uh, as soon as I make that statement, the thought immediately may go to God's incommunicable attributes. And so we just have to be clear. We're not going in that direction. Okay. We're talking about participating in God, with God, in his communicable attributes. And that is what Trevor will now uh, get into with us. Okay, so there, there was a lot of O's in there, um, four O's. Can I, can I get uh, Paul, Paul, can I, can I start with you for a second? Can you tell me exactly the things that we're not going to become? Omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, Okay, awful. <laughs> yeah. Okay, it's, instead of doing the omnis, can you just oh, explain right. to me what, what's not going to happen to us? So, um, we're not going to become all powerful. We're not going to be everywhere. We're not going to know absolutely everything. And we're not going to become objects of worship. Mm. No. Okay, so that's, that's four of the six. Which, which was, ones are you missing, bro? There were four O's a second ago. <laughs> so there's four O's. There's four O's, right? So we, we can't create things. Yeah. All, we're not going to be all-knowing. We're not going to be everywhere, right? Yeah. Uh, we're not all-powerful. Yeah. What, what, what are the last two? Not objects of worship. Okay. And then the last one. We will never be part of the Godhead. Godhead. There we go. So that's that's the sixth one. What is what is the Godhead? The what is that? Okay, there we go. So you'll you'll never be part of the triune God, right? So that's what we mean. That's what we mean by God. Okay. So I just wanted to clarify that. And we might go back to that probably four or five more times throughout this entire session. It's not gonna be Father, Son, Spirit. Nathaniel, it's just that that's what we mean. If you understand what I'm talking about. Okay, when we say not part of the Godhead, you, that's just not, we're not going to be in that respect. Yeah. Okay, so the, the things that we we are going to take part in, the things that the Lord wants us to be a part of, okay, these are things that he is. Okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to kind of, who we got here, who we got here? Uh, I'm just, I'm just going to, I'm going to start off with Katie. I'm going to start off with Katie, the Scott. Okay. Katie, I, I'm going to throw a, a trick question at you. I'm sorry, but, and I just told you that it's a trick. So, okay. Did God create mankind? Yes. Okay, that's the common that's the common thought. That's the common thought, right? Interestingly enough, I, I forgot I needed to share my screen. Man, we're really man, 
we're just really behind behind today. Okay, here we go. Can you guys see it? I just realized the trick. <laughs> he created man, but not mankind. <laughs> oh, oh wow. I'm impressed. Okay. So here we go. That's that is that is actually the correct answer. And what we're we're gonna get into that here in a second. So what we're actually gonna see is in Genesis 1, what we see is that God creates everything according, this is the phrase that we need to write down, according to their kind, according to their kind. So can you, can you see, uh, in, this is Genesis 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, okay? So we, we don't have to read all of these, but you can, you can go back and look at them later. But basically, in these verses, it clearly states that the trees are bearing fruit according to their kind. And the seeds are according to their kind. Okay, so this is the plant life. Then in verse 21, and then again in verse 24 and 25, okay, it also uses these phrases, according to their kind, according to their kind. Okay, every single thing that God creates in Genesis 1 is according to their kind. Okay, when he makes man... What does he make it according to? Katie, this is a question for you. Um, like himself, we were made in his image? Yes, yes. Okay, so this is the thing. Man's original intention from the very beginning was not his own kind. It was actually God kind. God made man God kind. Okay, so he made man in his image and according to his likeness. So this is actually a, uh, uh, you could kind of maybe say a shell of, uh, or a duplication of himself. So the, the reality of God is not in the man, but basically the capabilities are all there, if that makes sense. Okay, so what we're what, actually this is kind of a cool verse i'm going to take you to this this is something that paul says in acts 17. um can you read 17 28 and 29 just 29a just the beginning of it for in him we live and move and are even as some poets among you have said for we are also his race being then the race of God, we ought not to suppose that what is divine is like gold or silver or stone, like an engraving of art and thought of man. Oh, sorry, I think I read it all. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. So uh, it's okay to read the Bible. So, um, so it says, it clearly says that we are his race, right? We are the race of God. Okay, so that's, that's, that's from the very beginning. So this is something, these are attributes that were created in Genesis 1.26. And actually, man, this is going to be very interesting because my daughter just yeah, ran into the room. Just the really? Uh-huh, I did. You want to say hi to everybody? Uh-huh. Okay. Okay, so this is my daughter. And she's going to tell you all about God kind. Oh, now my wife took her away. <laughs> okay. So, see, now you guys all, now you guys know, like, who made this incredible picture here on the wall. Everybody, everybody like, texts me. They're like, uh, why do you have a unicorn on your wall? Okay. So, 
now, now what we have is that um, man has the capabilities, okay, of being filled with God to then express God, okay, because God made man according to his kind. Okay, the problem is that happened is that man ends up, uh, well, he ends up doing the wrong thing, right? And so he has an option in the garden. He can either choose the tree of life or he can choose the tree of death, also known as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, if you've, if you've followed us this long in the dive sessions, I think we've made it abundantly clear that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was Satan, and the tree of life is Christ. And he is our life, or he should be, and we need to eat from the tree of life, okay? So they chose Satan in that moment, and the moment man chose to be God, okay, because that's what the temptation was. You will be like him, okay, the serpent. That's what, that's what he was kind of trying to sell Eve on. You're going, you're going to be just like him, okay? And so the moment man chose that, mankind was created, okay? So this is when God and man separated. And then now, whenever the Bible, you know, I think the first time mankind is actually mentioned is around Noah's time. God references them to mankind. So this is, they're no longer his kind. But, but according to his original intention, he wants them to be. Okay, so now we, now we go to Genesis. This is, this is very important because we're going we're gonna to dissect this a lot in the future. But right now uh katie can you just read verse 24 mm -hmm. sorry this is right after the fall i we just skipped a whole bunch this is right after the fall and the lord has put a curse on the man the woman the serpent and now he's uh now it says this go ahead so he drove the man out and at the east of the garden of eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life Okay, so this is, this is really awesome because all these things are actually attributes of God hmm. that are now being taken away from man, okay? So first you have a, a cherubim, and this is, you can write this down, but in a couple weeks we're going to do a dive session on the cross, and we're going to get into the fact that he fulfilled every single one of these things on the cross, and it's really awesome. But, okay, so the first one is a cherub. And a cherub actually, the symbolism is that it's, it's God's glory, okay? So that's the first one. The, the flaming sword, the flame is God's holiness. The sword is God's righteousness. The tree of life, okay, uh, is God's love for us that we also, when we also take the tree of life, we also get light, okay? So light and love. All these things are guarded. We can't, we can't partake of them any, anymore. This is not an option for you. Okay, so at that point, I'm going to hand this off to Nathan, and Nathan is going to explain to us and give us some verses on very clear verses that this is only God that has this characteristic, and you don't. So go ahead, Nathan. Yeah. So um, the first one, and Trevor, if you could drive your screen. Um, first one is Revelation 
and um, I'm gonna. Okay, we have who? Who's the uh, who's the guy from Birmingham? Are you there? There yep. we go. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Lam. Um, hi, I'm Nathan. Nice to meet you. Hi. Um, I uh, maybe we could just go through these verses together. The first one's Revelation fifteen four. Could you read that? Um, could you read that for us, please? Mm-hmm. Uh, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous judgments have been manifested. Right. So this this verse has a very strong categorical statement um, right up there at the top, right after that initial question. Could, could you point that out for us again, what that is? The one says, in this. Yeah, yeah verse four, it says, you alone are what? Holy. You alone are holy. This is one of these, you know, often when you read the Bible, if you're like me, you read some of it and you have no idea what it means. Or is anybody here like that? Lamb, are you like that sometimes? Definitely. <laughs> this is one of these verses where I know exactly what the Bible means. The Bible means God alone is holy. Very clear. It, it doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be explained. God alone is holy. It's kind of like, all right, that's the point. So that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to move on to the next verse because we've established that God alone is holy. Amen. Let's remember that, okay? Then let's go to Romans 3.10. And can you read that for us? Yep. Uh, even as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Right. So again, this is another categorical statement. The other one was about God. This one is about us. There is none righteous. Right. So, Lamb, when you were born, were you righteous? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I wasn't. Nobody was righteous. This is a very clear verse, doesn't need a lot of interpretation. There is none righteous. Um, but if you look at Romans 10.3, um, which we will be taken to momentarily by Trevor, <laughs> as we wait with we painted breath. Amen. All right. So this one speaks of God's righteousness. So the other verse said none is righteous, but this one says that God has righteousness. So you put these two verses and you realize that while we are not righteous, God is righteous. So put these two verses together and we can come up with something very close to Revelation 15.4, which is that God alone is holy. Well, these verses in Romans, we could say that God alone is righteous. God in Christ, you know, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are the extent of righteous, righteousness. And then we're going to go to Isaiah 42.8. Isaiah 42.8 is going to do the same thing with glory. Mm. And so if you'll notice, remember the, the verse that Trevor was just going through with Katie. 
there's the cherubim with the flaming sword representing mm -hmm. God's holiness, righteousness, and glory. We find out that God is each of these things, and God alone is each of these things. So glory here in Isaiah 42.8. Lamb, why don't you read that for us too? Amen. I am Jehovah, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to idols. Right. I will not give my glory to another. Mm. Glory is a divine property. Mm. It is unique to God. Glory is not something that another has. Glory is unique to God, and it is not something that he gives to others. Mm. Um, so these are the three things that Trevor just introduced us to in Genesis 3.24. And all this, I think, makes a lot of sense. I'm going to take you through two more points we could actually do this all day with various attributes of God, but I'm just going to hit two more. One is love. First John 4, 8 and 4, 16 both tell us that God is love. God himself is love. Um, it doesn't say Nathaniel is love. It doesn't say lamb is love. It says God is love. Mm. And this, what this means is that God is simply the origin of love. I mean, there are very few verses that say in the Bible that say God is noun. There's a lot of verses that say God is adjective. You know, God is. Um, God is loving, right? Oh, God is loving. God is kind. God is merciful. God is gracious. But this is really unique in that it says God is love. It's a really strong statement. Hmm. Um, so again, this is a, an attribute that is unique to God. And then I'm going to do one more, which we can find in 1 John 1, 5. This is another one, another one of these God is statements. And by the way, you can mainly find these in the, uh, in what are called the Johannine books of the New Testament, the books that John wrote, which is the gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, epistles of John, and the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. um, it has a lot of these God is or I am statements when Christ utters them. So this is 1 John 1, 5. Mm -hmm. Lamb, why don't you read this for us too? Yep. And this is the message which we, has, we, which we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is love and in him is no darkness at all. Yeah, God is light. Very, very strong statement. Okay, so this is what I want you to do now, people who are listening to this. I want you to remember how strong these verses are. They don't allow a lot of wiggle room. To reiterate, Revelation 15:4, God alone is holy. Revelation, I'm sorry, Romans 3:10 and 10:3. None is righteous, only God is righteous. Mm -hmm. Glory. God will not give his glory to another. God is love and God is light. Amen. Now, Trevor is going to introduce all 149 of us mm -hmm. to something that may, um, anyway, we'll see what happens, but he's going to do something that makes me very uncomfortable and I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> 
So, uh, Trevor, do it gently, please. Okay. But, uh... Okay. So here we go. Here we go. As I love taking over when people say I'm going to make them uncomfortable. Um, okay, Paul. Where's Paul at? I don't even. I... Okay, Paul, bro. Where are you ready to get uncomfortable? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why is it always Paul who's the one getting uncomfortable at these things? <laughs> I'm good. With it. Okay. Okay. So. So Paul, it's interesting because a lot of those statements, it says that, that God is, is own. you basically cannot be this thing. You cannot. Okay. And so unless, unless, um, well, actually let's just hit the first one. So Paul, can you read, can you read Hebrews, um, uh, 12, 10? So the first one, do you remember the first one was holiness, right? So right. you alone are holy, okay? What does Hebrews 12.10 say? For they disciplined for a few days as it seemed good to them, but he, for what is profitable, that we might partake of his holiness. Mm. Oh, that's really quite interesting. Okay, so at first, at first, it says that you alone, you're the only one who's holy. And now the Bible is telling us that we're partaking of it. Okay, so it sounds like, it sounds like I am going to become holy. And actually, one of the, one of the ways that we can see this is uh, in Revelation 21. So each one of these, I'm going to, I'm going to actually show you guys each, each one of these, you can connect to the new Jerusalem, which mm -hmm. is the topic that we're going to hit next week. We are going to deep dive into the new Jerusalem, like you guys have never done before. Okay. But right now, can you read verse two? And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Okay, who's the New Jerusalem? Well, we are. We are. We're the New Jerusalem, okay? This is something, if Katie came week three, she needs to hear about the divine romance at some point. Because we, we went over this, and the New Jerusalem is us. It's the church. Okay, <clears throat> if it's not the church, then the end of the Bible ends with a lamb marrying a big, huge, gold Rubik's Cube, which is strange, okay? And so... It is us, and this city, what, what does it say that this city is, Paul? Oh, What's the first part? Bride adorned for her husband. Well, I, I, I saw the what? Holy. Right. Yeah. Oh, okay, so the city is holy. But in Revelation 15, 4, it says you alone are holy. Mm. So what happened, Paul? We must have partaken of his holiness. Oh my goodness, you got to be kidding me. Okay, so, but that's not the first one, Paul. That's not the first one we're going to get uncomfortable with here. Okay, because, and I don't even know if that makes you uncomfortable. Sometimes you're like, oh yeah, you know, I've seen those pictures of halos on people's heads. Sure, whatever, I'm holy, okay? <laughs> well, let's, let's go with righteousness. So none, none is righteous, not even one, okay? None, none, okay? So now what we're going to do, 1 Corinthians 1.30 is interesting because this is kind of cool. It shows, it shows what the Lord, um, he became something to us. Can you read that? 
But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom to us from God, both righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Mm. Okay, so he became righteousness to us. Okay, so I am not righteous. I'm not righteous. Okay, but he became righteousness. And now we're going to go to 2 Corinthians 5. And a verse that, that always confuses me, but we're going to focus on the end of it because it's awesome, because the beginning, I don't understand. Okay, Paul, can you hit, can you hit this verse for me, please? Him who did not know sin, he made sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Wow, okay, so literally, he was made sin on our behalf. That's the part I don't get that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he did that so that we become, is it our own righteousness? No. Whose righteousness is it? The righteousness of God. Okay, it's the righteousness of God in him. Okay, so this verse is, this verse is awesome. Now we, now we have to hurry and run back to, you know, you know what, it's the new J. Okay, so... Here we have, uh, sorry, chapter 19, verse 8. Can you, can actually, can you read verse 7 also, just because it's awesome? <laughs> let us rejoice and exult, and let us give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And it was given to her that she should be clothed in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Okay. So this is, this is really interesting. Like now the saints have righteousness. What's up with that? But, but none is righteous, not even one. Okay, let's go to glory because glory, man. Okay, the glory one was strong, Paul. It was strong. Actually, Paul, what is glory? I... I... Um, I thought glory was the attribute that led to us worshiping God, but I have a feeling the way this is going to unfold is going to prove me wrong. <laughs> oh, I like He's on to you. <laughs> I like Paul. Um, okay, so this is the thing, bro. Uh, you know, I ask a lot of I ask a lot of believers. You know, like what are we supposed to do now that we're saved? And they'll say, "Oh, we're supposed to glorify the Lord." And I'm like, "Okay, I agree with you. What is it?" And then it gets really awkward and they actually have no idea what glory is and they don't know how to do it. And so I'm like, okay, you gave the right answer, but practically I, you have no idea what we're supposed to do. So actually glory is God expressed. Okay. So the way that, the way that we know that, you know, a lot of times you see like a professional athlete in the United States. I don't know if it goes that this happens anywhere else, but you know, the guy has like the game of his life, you know, and then the, the reporter comes over and he shoves the microphone in his face and he's like, here, you like, what, what did you think about scoring all those touchdowns? And he's like, I just want to give all the glory to God. Paul, who's getting the glory in that moment? The athlete. The athlete is. The athlete's getting all the glory, okay? Even if their intention is good, okay? Like, I, you know, I, I respect the intention, okay? But in that moment, that person is receiving all the glory because they expressed themselves in a certain way, 
okay? They expressed their abilities, they expressed their talent, okay? And by doing that, they got the glory. So glory is essentially just God expressed. And what's really interesting, you know, I don't know, I don't know about you, but I, I used to think glory was just a big bright light, okay? I, I don't know. That, that's kind of what I always thought glory was. It's just like, if I see glory, I would be blind, okay? Maybe that's true. Maybe like, because God is light and light being expressed is glory. I, I, okay, I'm okay with that. But the fact of the matter is practically, uh, God clearly says in Isaiah 42, 8, that I will not give my glory to another. Hmm. Okay, Paul, how do you interpret that? That we won't have God's glory. Yeah, bro, that's... <laughs> That's, you're a smart one, dude. Okay, so this is the thing, dude. I, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to John 17, and there's a verse here that is just, what? Can you, can you read, uh, can you read 21 and 22? That they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Uh, okay. So what did so, Isaiah say again? Yeah, bro. He said, I will not give my glory to another. <laughs> Paul, it says he won't do it. I won't do it. Okay, so Paul, now we have a contradiction in the Bible. Yeah. Because God, as in Jesus, just said that I'm going to give them my glory. Does he not say that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, bro, but... bro, was Isaiah lying? No, because of verse 21 right there, right? Okay, okay. Explain it. Because um, we are in the Father and the Son there. Well, when, when we are, right? Then if you're in God, then the glory of God, you're within that glory of God. I'm saying oh, okay. that badly, am I? <laughs> okay, so, so basically the only way to reconcile this is unless, okay, I agree, Isaiah, God's not going to give his glory to another. But what if a person becomes God? Is he giving it to somebody else? No. No. So he's not actually violating his word in Isaiah 42 8. Mm. But if he makes you, Paul, if he makes you him, you can have God's glory. How do you feel now? Are you still uncomfortable? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes us him or that we may be in him and this. Yeah. Okay. 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 I want. I want to. I want to clarify something. I want to clarify something. Yes, it's true that we are in God. Okay, but that that kind of just sounds like like you just put one cup into another cup. All right. Yeah. No. What's actually happening is is those two things are becoming one. Okay. So what's interesting is in verse twenty one, right? the oneness that you see there is the same oneness that he has with the father. 
Mm. All right, yeah. Bro, it's it's not it's not a different kind of oneness. It's not like this, you know, it's the same oneness that the son has with the father. Right. So for us to, you know, sometimes we want to make ourselves feel more comfortable about it. So we're like, oh well, yeah, I mean it's like putting putting this object inside another object. So we're in it. So I guess it's okay then. But no, no, no. You are actually becoming the object, bro. You are becoming that person. And that is how you have his glory. You are able to express God because you have become him in life and nature, but not the Godhead. Okay. So this is, this is the thing. How do you feel now, Paul? I mean, this is, you know, I understand. I understand. Yeah, yeah. No, it's making a lot of sense now, especially when you link it to the divine romance. Oh yeah, bro. How about that divine romance? Okay. Interesting that you would say that because the next verse is actually linked to the divine romance. So can we go to, um, why don't you read uh, 5, 25, 26, and 27? Husbands, yeah. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, hmm. that he might, might sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing of the water in the word, that he might present the church to himself glorious, Oh, having spot or wrinkle or any such things <laughs> that she would be holy and without blemish. Oh man, we got holy and glory in that one. It was, it, that's a twofer. So, so bro, he gave himself up on the cross because he loved the church, right? And th so this, these verses are cool because it's past, present, and future. So in the past is verse 25. The present is what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be sanctifying ourselves by the washing of the water in the word, which is hopefully happening a little bit today and also with our personal time with the Lord. And then 27 is actually the future. He's doing this process right now so that he can present the church to himself glorious. Okay. Now, really quickly, really quickly, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just show you this. Uh, three, sorry, three. 21. Can you, can you read 321 and it'll actually show us where glory is found? To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus unto all the generations forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so where's glory found? In the church and in Christ. In the church, bro. Is glory found on the soccer pitch, bro? Sorry, the football pitch. <laughs> Not unless the church are there. <laughs> Not unless the church is there, bro. Okay, so this is the thing. This is the thing. Like, we need to we need to see. We need to see that if we want to express God, yeah. Oneness, oneness expresses God. Okay? It's actually one of his highest attributes is oneness. And so this is this is something actually we're not going to go there right now, but 1 Corinthians 14 is in the context of the church being one. And when someone comes into a meeting, what they see is the oneness. And it says that they will fall down on the ground and say, surely God is among you. Okay. Because oneness expresses God. So you can look at that verse later, but really quickly, um, and I'm going to, I'm going to kind of skip over the last two, but I just want you guys to see revelation 21, 11. Uh, this is the new Jerusalem. Once again, can you read verse 11? Having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, as clear as crystal, 
Okay. So the new Jerusalem has the glory of God. Wow. I mean, this is crazy, bro. This is crazy. This is what we're becoming. We're becoming glory. Wow. Okay. We're becoming holy. We're becoming righteous. We're becoming glory. Okay. We're also becoming love. You guys can look up this later. I'm going to try to speed this up because in Romans 5, 5, it says the love of God is poured out into our hearts. So now I have the capability of loving the way that God loves. Okay. Also in 1 Corinthians 16, 24, Paul ends that that book with my love in Christ. It's incredible. That phrase is incredible because he's saying it's his love, but it's in Christ because Paul has been so transformed that his love was Christ's love. Okay. So this, that's, an, that's another one you can look up. Obviously the bride is adorned for her husband, which is the new Jerusalem, which is love. And then light um, you know, man, it, God, God says in John nine, five, I believe Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Okay. And then in Matthew five fourteen, it says that man is the light of the world. So now there's a transition. The Lord gave us the spirit. And so now I have the capability of being light to people and a luminary in Philippians two fifteen. Okay. And then obviously you, you see here in Revelation 21, 11, the glory of God, her light is like that of a precious stone. So she's actually, the new Jerusalem is actually expressing this light, this bright light. Okay. At this point, um, at this point, how are you doing, Paul? Do you, do you see, do you see the difference of what we're not becoming and what we are becoming? Yeah, yeah. Okay, is it becoming a little bit more clear? Yeah, yeah, it's good. <laughs> How do you, I mean, is it kind of cool, man? I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really um, illuminating. <laughs> Getting some more light. <laughs> nice word, nice word. I see what you did there. Okay, so at this point, let's, I'm going to hand it off to Nathan because Nathan's going to bring up something from church history that's pretty cool. Yeah, thanks. Um, so the, what we were just talking about just now is we were kind of dealing with a quandary of how can it be that the Bible says that only God is some things, and yet the Bible turns around and says that we become those same things, or that we participate in those things. Um, there is in... Um, there is uh, one of what we call the church fathers now called Gregory of Nyssa. Um, he lived in the fourth century and he is one of what is called the Cappadocian fathers. I don't know if any of you know the Cappadocian fathers, but if we did not have these three brothers in the Lord, two of whom were actually siblings, Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nazianzen, uh, they were friends, but then Gregory of Nyssa was the brother of Basil. So these three brothers, basically, if we did not have them, we would not have the Nicene Creed as we know it now. We would not be able to talk about the triune God in the way that we talk about the triune God now. 
And certainly we would not be able to articulate so clearly the deity of the Holy Spirit. So we talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Well, Gregory of Nyssa, I just taught a class on this actually last semester here in Leuven on the, on the history of, the, of, of pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit in church history. Without Gregory of Nyssa, we would not be able to say confidently that the Holy Spirit is God. Mm. This, is, this is one of the things that Gregory of Nyssa gave us. So next time, if you ever feel uncomfortable saying that the Son is God, then you need to just thank God that Athanasius helped us say that. And when you wonder about the deity of the Holy Spirit, you can thank Gregory of Nyssa for making that clear. Okay, so this, this brother... In church history is very, very important, Gregory of Nyssa. He wrote a book called De Perfectione, or On the Divine Perfections, or On Perfection. And in this book, um, he wrote this in the 380s, right before, not long before he died. He died, I think, around uh, 390, I think. We don't know exactly when he died, but he, he wrote this book on, on perfection. And a brother wrote to him saying, um, how is it that we become what God is? How do we attain perfection? Because, because Christ said, you shall be perfect as my father is perfect. So this brother wrote to Gregory of Nyssa say, how do we do this? Mm. And so Gregory of Nyssa wrote back and he said, actually it has everything to do with, with names, with names. And he said, you know, you realize that we're called Christians, right? And then he said this, the reason we're called Christians is not simply because somebody took, oh, look, I happen to have 3M original post-it notes right here at my disposal. Great Vanessa said, we're not Christians simply because there's a label on us that says Christian. Yeah, here's a pen. You know, I'm not a Christian because I have a sign on me that says Christian. Gregory Nyssa said, you're a Christian because you have partaken of Christ himself. Mm. You have become a Christ. You have been joined to the anointed one, and that makes you part of the Christ. A, a Christian is one who has participated in Christ. And then he goes a step further, and he says, not only do you have the name Christ, but you have everything that's in the name of Christ. So this is what he says. Um, I'm going to read you a little paragraph here. He says, the um, Paul knew the significance of the name of Christ. And he said that Christ is the power of God. And Christ is the wisdom of God. And Paul called Christ peace. And he called Christ light and accessible in whom God dwells. And Paul called Christ sanctification and redemption and high priest and Passover and the propitiation of souls and the brightness of glory in the image of substance, the maker of the world, spiritual food, spiritual drink, spiritual rock. Christ is water. Christ is the foundation of faith. Christ is the cornerstone. Christ is the image of the invisible God. So mm. basically what Gregory of Nyssa does is he goes through all of Paul's epistles and he says, 
Christ is all of these things. And then he goes on and he says this, that some of these things we can participate in. And to that extent, the things that we participate in, we actually become. We become the righteousness of God in him. We become, we partake of God's glory. And that's how Paul can say in Ephesians, to the Father be glory, not only in Christ Jesus, but in the church. Mm. Because the glory of God is in the church, just as much as it is in, the, in, in Christ himself. So here Gregory is saying, listen, there's all these things that Christ is. And when we participate in Christ, we participate in what Christ is. So if Christ is righteousness, we become righteousness. It is of God that you are in Christ Jesus. So we're in Christ. And because Christ has become righteousness to us, we become the righteousness of God in Christ. So what I want to say here is, is that, you know, as Christians, a lot of us have become really uncomfortable with the kind of language that Nathaniel and Trevor, I and Guillaume were, were trying to use, because this is not how Christians talk anymore. And I think that's a great tragedy. We have lost our vocabulary of how to talk about the divine reality. Gregory of Nyssa, his brother Basil of Caesarea, you know, all of these church fathers, Irenaeus that we were talking about last week, Athanasius that we were talking about last week, and to a large extent, C.S. Lewis became very, very comfortable using this language. You know, we all love C.S. Lewis, right, because he wrote the language and wardrobe and we all trust him as a you know, solid Orthodox Christian. Well, anyway, he became really comfortable using this language. And listen, brothers and sisters, if it's good enough for Gregory of Nyssa, who gave us the Nicene Creed, it is good enough for me. I am very willing to say that I participate in Christ, who is righteousness, so that I become the righteousness of God. And eventually, what he says in the end of this, at the end of this treatise he says, listen, when we, uh, let me just, let me just read this little bit and then I'll, uh, let's see. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find this. But anyway, he says, yeah, 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 here it says, this is right at the end of De Perfectione. He says, um, drawing from him as from a pure and uncorrupted stream, a person will show in his thoughts such a resemblance to his prototype that refers to Christ, such a resemblance to his prototype as exists between the water in the running water or stream and the water taken away from there in a jar. Okay. Greek rhetoric is really hard to follow, but he's saying it's like Christ is a fountain and in him is water. And when he pours that water out into us, it's the same water. It doesn't change. So all the virtue that's in Christ, the righteousness, the glory, the love, the light, the holiness, Christ is all those things. And when we are baptized into Christ, not only do we get the name Christ, but we get the the stuff. We get Christ himself. And everything that's in Christ, in as much as it's 
communicable because there are some incommunicable things. Those things are poured into us Amen. in what Gregory calls a pure and uncorrupted stream to the point where we just manifest, even in our thoughts, the very righteousness, glory, holiness, love, and light of God. Amen. So I really love the way that Gregory talks, even though sometimes he's super complicated. But I hope that all of us would become really comfortable using the words of the Bible and using the words of church history just to talk about the reality. Listen, I've become the righteousness of God in Christ. If that makes you uncomfortable, I'm sorry, because that's the way Paul talks, and that's the way the Cappadocian Fathers talked. And mm. if that makes us as, I don't know what kind of, Katie, do you know what kind of Christian you call yourself? Are you like Protestant or Catholic? Or, uh, or born again. I was born again. Born again. There because we go. I grew That's, up as a Catholic, so I know. <laughs> yeah. So Catholics, Protestants, Evangelicals, Fundamentalists, Orthodox, Coptics, all Christians talk differently. Listen, we all need to get really comfortable using this strong biblical language because that's mm. the reality that's the reality so that's the only point i wanted to say is we have church history on our side when we talk like this yeah, yeah. so it goes over to somebody else i've lost my point who's next nathaniel's next he's going to show us what life and nature is because we say it all the time yeah, yeah. so you know We'll, we'll, we'll use this phrase sometimes, you know, we are becoming God in life and in nature. Also, sometimes we'll talk about how uh, the divine attributes can be expressed through human virtues. So we want to kind of unpack these <clears throat> phrases a little bit. And uh, maybe I can uh, go down to South Africa and maybe Nadine... Let me uh, hit you there. Okay. Um, so anyway, this is not a trick question. Just to get your thought, what, how would you define life? Um, well, it depends on what life you refer to. <laughs> sure. So bios, suke, ozari. Right. Okay. But I would say maybe let's just get very, very general. Okay. How would you, like, what is, what is life? I, I don't know. I feel like my mind I know, is it's, like I know, it's super, I know, I know, I know, I know that, yeah, well, yes, welcome to the struggle. Um, <laughs> and so I, I think for these purposes. Usually people, you know, like I, I would say my old definition of life was just, you know, my daily, um, you know, like people would say enjoy life so yeah. you know the things i'm involved in uh, sure that would be my old definition of life sure well you know um the the you know i i i wouldn't say that's incorrect and life is used in many different contexts and you know like somebody can say i'm the life of the party or you know whatever whatever so there's it use it's used in a number of different ways for this for this um purpose, I think maybe the simplest way to put it is that life is, is what you are. It's just what you are. So uh, when we say that we are becoming God in his life, 
it's just that simple. We're not going to try to unpack that or get overly complicated. And we're, and we're making a, a dis, uh, we're distinguishing between life and nature. You could say nature is, is, is more like how you are. It's the, it describes the characteristics of the life we receive. So actually holiness is God's nature. Okay. So, uh, life is is a bit more general and nature is a bit more specific you could say that uh we talked about this a little bit earlier but it, it's sort of like you know if you you have a peach tree well okay so you've got a tree right and it's a peach tree and it's a peach tree you know so the life of the peach tree you know it, it's just what it is what is it it's a peach tree Okay, but that peach tree has certain characteristics. That's the nature of the peach tree. Okay, the nature of the peach tree, it produces peaches. That's what it does, you know. Why? Because it has the life of that peach tree. Okay, so these two things, they're not, they're, they're, they're uh, close, but there is a distinction. And then there's the question of attributes. So when we talk now what we're talking about is what does it look like to become god in life and nature and one way we would describe that is by saying that god's divine attributes are being expressed through our human virtues but it's helpful, I think, to understand what we mean by attributes and virtues. So, uh, you know, I don't know, Nadine, have you heard of the example about uh, the glove and the hand, the hand and the glove? Yeah. So it's, it's like, uh, you know, I have a glove, it's just limp, right? But when I put the hand into the glove, it's the, the glove has meaning right? Otherwise, the glove has no meaning. Um, and the glove uh, expresses the hand, but it's the hand that really uh, gives uh, animation to, to the glove. Okay, virtue is referring to kind of our, our, um, our conduct it's referring to the expression the x you know when what is in us is fully realized that's virtue but what is in us okay when we're born again we receive god himself and god has attributes okay this is what god is in himself and uh so attributes they refer to a kind of quality that is characteristic of someone and so god is love god is light god is holiness god is righteousness these are all attributes of god okay but the attributes of god need to be expressed and the way they're expressed is through our human virtues so you know I, it, I'm, I see the Lord Jesus, and to me, he looks. I'm on there on the earth 2,000 years ago, and to me, 
he looks like any other guy. Actually, he looks worse than most other guys because Isaiah 53 says that he has no attracting former majesty that we would look upon him, right? All right, so he's just there. But then as I'm with him, I start to realize, yeah, okay, he's kind. He's compassionate. He's healing people. He's doing all kinds of things. But there's something, there's a fragrance that is being exuded from him. And what I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing his virtues, but, but there's something in those virtues. And those are his divine attributes. His divine mm -hmm. attributes are being expressed through his human virtues. So I, now when I see him, I know what love is. I know what light is. I know what righteousness is. It's being expressed through his human virtues. He's making the attributes of God seeable, tangible, right? Okay. So anyway, uh, we just wanted to sort of set the groundwork for that, but we felt there we really needed to kind of give a, an example. And so Nathan's going to give us a personal example. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm going to use an example here of, um, of one of, one of God's attributes, one of God's attributes, which can be expressed in one of, one of our human virtues. Um, so earlier I was talking about this verse um, in first John, first John four, eight says, God is love. So, um, so this is the thing. We may read, we may hear that verse and say, yeah, God is love, but you know what? I fall in love. I fell in love. I'm pretty, you know, I know how to love. I can do that. In fact, sometimes I fall in love when I don't want to. Sometimes you fall in love with the wrong person. It's called a crush. They're terrible. I'm glad I'm married and I'm past that. Um, but we can, we can, <laughs> we, we can, Crushes him terribly. Me too. Me too. What's that? Me too. Keep going. Yeah. yeah. So we can think that because we have this experience of love, sometimes we think that, ah, uh, do we really need God to love after all? So let me give you an example here. I, some of you have known me for a long time. I see a few older folks lurking on this call and you've known me for a while. We're not going to turn on your mic, okay? <laughs> but uh, but I had a reputation when I was growing up as being a, a pretty good kid. You know, I when I was in various gatherings of Christians, I was never the troublemaker. I would pay attention. I would take notes. I was, you know, I was a really good guy. I grew up. I did things well. I never really did any bad things. I mean, some, but not many. But, and the, the thing is, is I started to believe that I was pretty good. And then one day I fell in love with this woman who turned out to be one day my wife. And she's also on this call somewhere. And, um, this is the thing. She was a bad person and she 
you know, everything that I did good, she did bad. Um, and she had all kinds of crazy stories. I mean, her life was just, her life could be a movie. Sorry, dear. Um, but her life, just because she did, I was just wild. I mean, from country to country and all this crazy stuff. So everything I did right, she did wrong. Everything that she did wrong, I did right. And we got married. And suddenly I realized when I got married that I wasn't perfect. You're gonna, you're gonna laugh, but I really thought I was pretty good. But this is, this is when it became really critical to me. My wife, um, she just has this ability to love people. And when she was not a believer, I don't know if she had this ability, but you know, she, she had this life. She, she believed in Christ when she was a, a teenager, a late teenager in Mongolia. Um, she heard the gospel and believed in Christ. And then she picked up this ability just because of her fellowship with God, just to love people and to love unlovable people. Okay, I was a really good guy. I can love good people but I can't love bad people. And in fact, she would love people that I really despised. And she would invite them to our house for dinner. <laughs> and I'd have to sit there eating dinner, pretending to like them. At the same time, my wife, you can tell she just really loves them. She's just like, I love you or whatever, you know. If you know my wife, you know, okay, so. But this is, this is what I wanna say. One day I realized that I am married to a woman who knows the love of God and has become the love of God in a way that makes me super uncomfortable, in a way that I can never match. And, and I'm going to have to spend the rest of my life with her, and this is getting really, really uncomfortable. And I also started to realize that I think there's something really wrong with me. That is, I love. I love her, but I don't love anybody else. And so I was... Um, I was driving one day. I was living in California at the time. I was driving on what is called the five, the five, five freeway, interstate I-5. Otherwise known as a motorway. Yeah. Otherwise known as a motorway or an, an autobahn, which, in which everybody goes, you know, 20 kilometers an hour. Um, and I was kind of approaching a moment of personal crisis um, where I realized I don't even love my family. Like, I don't even love the people in my house. I don't love the people in my church. I don't, mm. you know, I don't even love myself anymore. It was, I was like driving down the five freeway, just kind of in a moment of personal crisis. Um, you know, I don't recommend driving and crying at the same time, but I did it that day. Um, and I'm like, Lord, listen, I thought I was good. I thought I was able to do these things, but I do not know how to love people. I don't know how to love people. And I said, Lord, you're going to have to change me because I can't do this. And I married a woman who is able to do this. Please do something. Okay. So, um, this was probably in the year 2006, long time ago, right? Um, 
And you know what? I, I'm going to just fast forward. We've been through a lot, my wife and I. We've moved a lot. Moved, lived in the UK for a while. Lived in California. Lived on the east coast of the United States. Now we live in Belgium. And not so long ago, I realized that after years of just spending time with the Lord, spending time with his people, asking God all kinds of crazy things, I realized that God has actually been answering that prayer. Mm. Prayer is, God, I, need, I don't just need to learn how to love. I need you to be my love because my love can never do what it needs to do. Mm. You told me to love everyone. You told me to love my enemies. I can't even love my friends, Lord. What, what can I do here? Mm. So I, you know, I just wanted to tell this story to just to demonstrate there's a difference between the kind of love, loving ability that you were born with and the kind of a loving ability that comes by virtue of our regeneration. Hmm. By being born again, we get another life, and that life has a nature, and that nature is to love. Hmm. And so it's one thing, anyway, I think I've made my point, I'll back off now, but just to point, there's a difference between our limited ability to love, or a limited ability to be right, or just, or holy, mm-hmm. and the ability of God to be those things because God is the substance of love itself. And when we participate in that, we actually begin to pour out the very love of God into other people. And Amen. I can testify to this with my own experience. There's a difference. Yeah. Amen. Amen. So now I guess at this point we're gonna we're gonna move over to Nathaniel, um, who's going to say exactly what it means to become what God is and what it doesn't mean to become what God is, because we might have some funny ideas like, are we all going to be the same? Right. We wanted to acknowledge that it's possible to have some form of level of goodness apart from God. It is. No question. But only God is actually truly good and we thought that nathan's uh testimony i think really he really illustrates that um but sometimes people have the question okay okay we're becoming we're becoming god in his life and in his nature but what does that mean exactly um does it mean that we're all just going to become the same? Like we're going to become these interesting or not interesting, but just these uh, amorphous blobs of green Jasper for eternity. You know, I mean, what's, what's going to happen to, to us? What does it mean to actually become God? And um, I don't know, uh, maybe Trevor, can we share the, the screen again. Um, and uh, Nadine, can you read uh, Revelation 2, 17? We're going to read that one. Sorry. I'm okay, sure. Um, oh, by, by the way, really quickly, 
we've talked about it a lot, and it's our mistake that we haven't actually shown you the verse. 2 Peter 1.4 actually says that we're partakers of the divine nature. Yeah. <laughs> we should probably point that out. Yeah. Key verse. But I pulled up the verse. You can write it down. We've received his life and his nature. We're not just saying nature just to say it, but we're actually, yeah. Okay. So second, sorry. second Peter one, four. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So revelation two seventeen. Two seventeen. Okay. Yeah. Um, Nadine, can you read that? Yeah, sure. Just, okay. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give of the hidden manna, and to him I will give a white stone, and upon the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Right. And so uh, I want to just particularly draw our attention to this phrase that uh, he, I will give uh, a white stone and upon the stone a new name written, right? Which no one knows except him who receives it. So in the Bible, uh, the name implies, doesn't just Im imply the person, but also implies the characteristics of the person. Names are very meaningful in the Bible. And so... Um, one of the rewards that the overcomers will receive is that they will, will be given a new name. It's not a name that they have right now, but it's a name that the Lord will give them. And there are only two people who know that name, the person who receives it and the Lord who gives it. Those are the only ones who know that name. And that name is is, is will mean something to the person and to the Lord. To the person, it will mean, it, that name will encompass, will describe, will uh, fully embody that person's secret history with the Lord over the course of their entire life. It's when we meet the Lord, uh, if we're found faithful to be, his, to be overcomers, when we meet him, we'll receive a name that will, and as soon as we receive it, that name will mean something to us it, 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 uh, because of the, the particular and special and unique experiences that we've had with the Lord. On the one hand, we all go through a a, on a journey with the Lord, and there are definite similarities, but there are definite things that we go through that are very specific to our experience. And you realize from this verse, these are very precious to the Lord. The Lord's not, not, not uh, uh, just sending us all through an assembly line, you know, and we're all getting the same kind of thing. Actually, we all have a very particular course before him. And in, with each of us, uh, the Lord is uh, working on us in a very special way so that when we meet him, the sum total of our experiences 
will be embodied in this name that he gives us. And this is something that we will have with him for eternity. So this can really be a comfort to us when we realize we're not all becoming this kind of same blob of green jasper. We will all have, we all are having particular experiences of the Lord that will mean something both to him and us for eternity. And also, if you just look at the, at the Gospels, you have John, you have Paul, you have Peter, all these ones. The epistles. The epistles. In the, yeah, sorry, in, in the epistles. They're all very different people, right? But they're all mature, okay? Peter and John are not enemies. They're very different, okay? But the Lord isn't trying to make them the same. He's not trying to, to, to completely remodel Peter so he's the same as John. The Lord honors who Peter is because the Lord created Peter in that way, right? Trevor will get into this more, but the Lord created Peter in a certain way and he needed what Peter was, but Peter needed to pass through a lot of processes so that the unique characteristics of Peter could be brought through death and resurrection. The same thing with John, the same thing with Paul, okay? The Lord didn't, didn't, you know, expect Peter to have the same kind of education and background that Paul had. He just used Peter according to the way that he needed Peter, and he used Paul according to the way that he needed Paul. So hopefully this is a comfort to us. We realize actually the way the Lord has created us is very, very, very unique. It's special, and it's intentional because the Lord doesn't is not taking us through an assembly line. He's act, he wants us to become the same as he is, but uh, it is with it is so that the person that we are can be fully uplifted and brought into divinity. So now I'm going to hand it over to Trevor. Okay. Um, the, the part that I'm going to actually hit right now is that we're, I don't know what your opinion of transformation is. Okay. I think we all kind of start formulating our own ideas, uh, what it looks like, um, what the Lord's doing to me. Oftentimes I just thought the Lord wanted to make me the opposite of what I am. Okay. And that would be transformation. So I thought, you know, like, okay, if I'm, uh, if I'm really quick and I talk too soon, the Lord wants to make me the opposite. He wants me to, he wants me to be slow. Okay. And if, if I'm really, if I'm really, uh, uh, I don't know if I'm too much, whatever, whatever you think that is, you know, whatever, whatever your definition of too much is, you know, he's going to make me the opposite of that. Okay. And that's transformation that's transformation. If I hate people, then I'll love people. If I love people, then I don't really, anyway, we always, we always think it's going to be the opposite as long as it's positive, right? So there, then there's, then there's positive traits that we have that we, that we think like, oh, he doesn't really need to do anything to that, right? Because that's, that's super positive. It's just the things that need to be transformed are the things that are really bad in my mind. Okay. So, 
I think these are a lot of the concepts and things that we kind of formulate over time. So what I want to, what I want to hit on is that you are not being transformed into the opposite of what you are. Okay. So there's an awesome story and I love it. I love this story so much and it's in the old Testament and it shows this process of someone um, being being put through what we what we would say is death quote death and resurrection okay this is spiritually they're being put through death and resurrection and what their their personality is actually the same when when the lord's done but it's actually been brought into resurrection so therefore it's useful to him so again a common thought for me growing up as a christian was oh you know like that person's a good singer so God wants him to use his talent to sing, okay? Sounds logical, sounds logical. But what we don't know, a lot of Christians don't know, is that person's talent needs to die first and be brought into resurrection. Mm-hmm. And there's a different taste, okay? That's what we're getting at. When, when this person sings, they're not expressing themselves, okay? So that's, that's the thing. They're not expressing the self, the self. Okay. So when this person is speaking, it's like all you, you don't even care who it is. It's like, maybe this person's a really eloquent speaker. Okay. That's, this is a good example. Well, okay. He should speak. Well, yeah. Okay. Once he's been put through death and resurrection, maybe then he should speak. Okay. Otherwise, this person is using their natural ability to build the church. And we kind of went over that a couple weeks ago. Maybe not something you want to do. Okay. So, by the way, by the way, a little asterisk to this. Because I, I, I've, I've gone down this, this pathway many times before. Does that mean that I should not do something that I'm good at? Okay. And the answer is no. Because what will happen is... If you're good at speaking, let's say you're really good at preaching the gospel, okay? You should go preach the gospel until you fail miserably, okay? And then, you, and then you'll realize, man, actually, I'm not that good at preaching the gospel, okay? And that is, a, that is a small way to be put through death and resurrection is your natural ability will come to an end. So a lot like Nathan's story about like him, him trying to naturally love, even, even his wife in that story, Okay, even though she has the ability to love, um, and I, I know she's in here, but anyway, in principle, even she, even that ability needs to be put through death and resurrection. Okay, so now this is the cool story. So we're gonna go to Genesis thirty-four. I hope I hope everything that I just said makes sense because it might save you a couple years of agony. Um, <laughs> Okay, so this is really interesting. You have Simeon and Levi in the Old Testament, okay? And they're, they're two of, um, they're two of, okay, I'm gonna, I'm going to Katie on this one because she hasn't gotten any verses lately. Okay, <laughs> Katie, this is the deal. What, what you have is you've got Simeon and Levi and they have this sister, and we don't really like to talk about this story very much because it's kind of uncomfortable. But basically, their sister ends up getting uh, 
treated poorly <laughs> in in this story it's the nicest way i can put it she she gets she gets treated very poorly by a bunch of the men in this city okay and as as good brothers should they get kind of upset about it okay and so they come up with this masterful plan that they're going to go into the city and they're going to say hey guys um if all of you guys get circumcised we're good okay and so then all the men are like uh okay let's okay let's do that okay can you can you read let's this is this is what they end up doing can you read verses 25 and 26 yep then on the third day when they were still in pain two of jacob's sons simeon and levi dina's brother each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and slew every male and they slew Hamor and Shechem, his son with the edge of the sword, and they took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. Okay, so they go in, they go in, and, you know, my natural concept is like, way to go, guys. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's, that was a <laughs> good job, you know, protecting your sister, okay? But, but it actually really upsets Jacob. It really upsets Jacob, and it really upsets God, because that did not express the family or God correctly. And so what God or what Jacob actually does when he's blessing his sons in, in Genesis 49, he actually brings up this thing that they did. Okay. And can you, can you read the next three verses, five, six, and seven? This is what Jacob says to them when he's blessing all the sons. Mm -hmm. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Come, count not their counsel, O my soul. Be not united with their assembly, O my glory. For in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they, hamst they hamstrung, hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it's fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, and, and will scatter them in Israel. Okay. So this is really interesting. They actually don't get a blessing at all from Jacob. In fact, they get cursed by Jacob. And it's, it's funny because this is years later. I mean, that was chapter 34. This is so much later. And Jacob is still upset about it. He's like, no, no, what you did was wrong. And you guys, your, your disposition. Katie, do you know what disposition is? It's kind of a rare word. Um, it's kind of the stance you take on something. A little, it's kind of like your personality, I guess you could say. Um, for the longest time, I didn't know what my disposition was. I would always hear brothers speak about it in messages. And they're like, oh, your disposition, this, it needs to be put through death and resurrection. I'm like, okay, I get it. But I don't know what my disposition is. You know, like, what are we talking about? And then this one time, it was, we were on break in between these two, these two semesters in, in this Bible school. And I went home and I spent time with my family and it dawned on me, oh my goodness, that is my disposition, okay? I can see myself in my mom, I can see myself in my sister, in my dad, in my brother, okay? That is me, okay? So a lot of times your disposition comes from your family and it comes from your upbringing, okay? It, it forms kind of who you are. So this is interesting because their disposition was they were violent. They were weapons of violence, okay? And the reason why I love this story so much 
is because this is so negative sounding to, to the good, to the good mind. Okay. Weapons of violence, so unuseful to the Lord, so unuseful. Okay. So it, it's, it's different than saying like, oh, that person's good at, at speaking, right? That, that's a good thing. Well, no, this is actually violent. Okay. So what ends up happening is he ends up separating them. And, and this is a, in picture form, Katie, in picture form, what this is, is it's actually Jacob putting them through death. Okay. He's, he's in a sense killing them by separating them. They can't hang out together. Okay. That's why it's funny when you hang out with your family, your disposition comes out really quick. It's just like, boom, you're, you're back with your family. Okay. And this, this happens to me a lot anyway. So, um, yeah, just imagine a couple of me. It's kind of scary. Okay. So <laughs> then in Exodus 12:40, in Exodus 1240, what you have is it actually says that it, they, they were in Egypt 430 years. The Israelites were in Egypt enslaved for 430 years. This entire time, the Levites and, and Simeon's descendants were separated. They never got together for a family picnic. They never had a family reunion at the pyramid. Okay. There, there was, there, there was no getting together. They were separated. Okay. Then Moses comes along and in Exodus 14, there's this picture of baptism. Okay. According to first Corinthians 10, it's a picture of baptism. He leads them out of Egypt and they go through the Red Sea and they are baptized in the Red Sea. And this is also, this is death, okay? So when we, according to what, Romans 6, 3, and 4, we, we're, when we're baptized, we're baptized into his death and we're raised up in newness of life, okay? So this is what's happening to Simeon and Levite's descendants, okay? The thing is, their disposition was passed down even though it was 430 years. They were still the same people. They were super violent, Okay, so then this is what's really interesting. And this is where the story kind of takes a turn. Because there's this moment where, where Moses comes down off the mountain. And what are, what are these guys doing? They, these guys actually, they, they made a golden calf, right? And they start worshiping it. I mean, that you've got to be kidding me. Okay, I probably would have been right there with them. Okay, so... This is the thing, Katie. Can you read uh, twenty six through twenty eight and see see what the see what they end up doing? It's kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, "Whoever is for Jehovah, come to me." And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves to him, and he said to them, "Thus says Jehovah, the Lord God of Israel: Let each man put his sword upon his thigh, and go back and forth from gate to gate throughout the camp." and each man kill his brother, and each man his companion, and each man his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men among the people fell. Okay, okay. W what is your cat's name? <laughs> Magnus. <laughs> okay. Magnus. Hello, hello. Okay, so I, I love the... I, you know, we're supposed to preach the gospel to every living creature, so we mine as well. Okay, so this is this is the deal. In in Exodus 32, 26 through 28, you have these, you have these 
the Levites come out of nowhere. It's interesting. Man, they haven't, they haven't had the family reunion in, in over 400 years. And now they're out in the wilderness. And, and Moses says, okay, anybody, what does he say? He's like, hey, guys, slay everybody who's done the, who's done the golden calf, who's worshipped it. And, of course, the Levites rise up and they're like, yes, let's do this. Okay? We're back with a vengeance. Okay? And so they end up going around and they end up slaying all these people. I mean, it is crazy. It is crazy. Okay. Hmm. They're doing, they do, they did the exact same thing they did in Genesis 34 with what these guys did to their sister. Nothing changed. Okay. But what changed was they were, they passed through death and resurrection. And this same thing, it was violent. It was violent, which in our minds, we're just like, that's so wrong. Right. But what ended up happening was it became useful to God. It became useful to God. Okay. Yeah. And, and what, what is, what is Jehovah and Moses end up doing? Well, in Deuteronomy, so because, because they did this, they end up receiving something that's incredibly awesome. Can you read? Uh, yeah, let's read verse 8, I think. Yep. And the court, I'm sorry. And concerning Levi, he said, May your Thummim and Urim be with your faithful man, whom you tested at Mesa, with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah? Yeah, you're good to go. You're good to go. Um, okay, and then, sorry, the next verse also, verse 9. He who said of his father and mother, I do not regard him, and his brothers he did not acknowledge, and his children he did not recognize, for they have kept your speaking, and they have guarded your covenant. Okay, this is this is really interesting. If if you really get into these verses a lot, in verse nine, it's pretty cool because it actually says they didn't even regard their brothers. They they like when they when they did this thing at the bottom of the mountain. Okay, they weren't sitting there with their natural relationships. They were following Jehovah, hmm. and so they didn't even regard their brothers. They even slayed some of them. Okay. I'm not suggesting that we do that. I'm just saying the the principle is there that in order to follow Jehovah, we have to disregard everything, even family, even, even our relatives. We have to follow Jehovah, okay? And so in doing this, the Levites actually got the priesthood. So this is the Leviticus priesthood that they ended up receiving because they slayed everybody who worshiped the golden calf. Hmm. Now, what's really, this is my favorite part of the whole story, Katie. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. What do the priests do? They would be the ones who serve in the temple of God. Yeah, yeah. How do they serve? Um, they, do, they do a lot of things, but what's one of the main things they're doing? Uh, they um that they the have Levites to sacrifice yeah yeah the sacrifice right yeah. so i have to i have to bring to you my animal and guess who's guess who's going to slit its throat the Levites. 
the Levites. Okay, this is the crazy thing. This violent disposition that they had, okay, ended up being passed through death and resurrection. And the entire Old Testament, it's used by God to serve God. Okay, this is, this is a, an amazing picture of death and resurrection. Something that, something that you would disregard as bad as that person needs to change, okay? But actually, it's brought into resurrection, and it's incredibly useful to him, okay? Mm-hmm. So it's not, always, it's not always in our minds. We have, to, we have to really focus. It's not always in our minds, this, this idea that it's this, um, that it's always a good, it's, quote, good, according to my concept. That's good, you know? But actually, it could be, maybe the person is very, very bold, you know, Peter put his foot in his mouth all the time. I mean, the guy just open mouth, insert foot. Okay. Time and time and time again. Okay. And you know, brothers are always like, Oh, I'm like Peter and all this stuff. I'm, I'm more like Thomas. I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm doubting Thomas, man. But you know what? Don't hate on Thomas because he actually traveled the furthest. If you look at church history. Okay. So, but the, but the thing, the, the cool thing was, the cool thing was, Peter ended up the same thing. He ended up passing through this. I'm in this. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. We could do it some other time, but he, he swore, Lord, I will not deny you. I will not deny you. And it was just, he was so bold, Katie. He was just like, I I will not do it. Okay. And then the Lord's like, well, you know, and, and after he denied him three times, the Lord looked over at him. What do you, what do you think Peter felt like in that moment? He was so sure of himself. I'm, I'm so absolute. I'm so absolute. And he just fell flat on his face. Yeah. And then, and then the Lord actually brought him, he gave him this, this situation. Actually, the Lord actually says in Luke that Satan has asked me if he can sift you as wheat. This is a really interesting verse. I just thought about this. I want to, the Satan comes, I want to sift them like wheat, but I have prayed that the Lord will, that will, the Lord will, uh, what establish you and that you will help establish your brothers. Right. Okay. And so literally the reason why we pass through these things, like what Peter, what happened to Peter is so that later on Peter through this failure, he can minister to someone through this failure. Okay, so he can help establish his brothers. So yeah. the Lord ended up coming back. And, you know, he has that, that amazing phrase, and Peter. Okay, bring all the disciples and Peter, you know. And then, and then he sits on the side of the water and he's, he's cooking some fish, you know. The Lord ate it. I don't know where it went because he had a glorified body. It's really weird. But regardless, okay, he, he brought... Peter into resurrection. Okay. Mm-hmm. He passed through death and resurrection. Okay. Katie, did Peter stop being bold? No, no way. What did he do on the day of Pentecost? Um, he was preaching to everyone, wasn't he? I can't really remember. Yeah, he, Katie, he jumps up there and he just lets it rip and he just starts throwing bombs into the crowd. Okay. I mean, just these, just these nukes are going off. 
And he actually pricked, it says he pricked the hearts of the Jews. Yeah. Okay. So this is the thing. This is the thing. It's not that God made Peter the opposite of what he is. Peter, stop being bold. Stop being bold. It's that God took that boldness and he actually renewed it, transformed it, and made it useful to him. This is what transformation actually is. It's not eliminating Katie's personality and it's not making Katie a personality that she's not. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's what's really important. Um, maybe, maybe Nathaniel, just because I've talked so long, maybe Nathaniel can give us an example of petrified wood really quick. Have y'all, uh, have you, have you encountered petrified wood before? It's, it's no. very, yeah, it's a very interesting um, thing, for lack of a better word. Um, Lamb, have you encountered it? Yes, I have, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it's really interesting, right? Because uh, basically, it, uh, it actually looks like a piece of wood. Uh, but when you pick it up, it's, you realize it's a, it's a stone. It's become a stone. Mm. and um you know the 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 process by which that happens is you know basically you just have this piece of wood that's lying in the river and over many 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 years um the uh water washes minerals over the wood and what happens is that gradually then <laughs> The, the stone changes or the, the wood changes and it changes from wood to stone. It's uncanny because, you know, then you're holding this piece of, it really looks like a piece of wood, doesn't it, Lamb? I mean, it just, it's just right there. You can see, you know, like with wood, you can see the rings and all that kind of stuff and it's there, but it's, it's, it's stone. And so it's just an awesome example of what happens with us. Uh, as we open to the Lord and allow him to wash away all of the uh, uh, spots and wrinkles and blemishes, then spontaneously there's a metabolic process that takes place. And gradually all the wooden and earthen stuff that's in us just gets washed away and it gets replaced with, uh, you could say we, we get stonified. Um, <laughs> You know, in, in First Peter, it says, you also are living stones. So there's, this is a wonderful process of transfer, and a wonderful example of the process of transformation. Um, but I think we're now going, we're, we're heading towards the end now. And I think Nathan has some, uh, just some practical points, shall we say, on, you know, because we've been talking about what, we're not becoming what we are becoming. What does it look like? Um, but this is now more on how. How do we actually, how can we actually uh, become God? Right. So this is a really important point. Um, in a certain sense, we've been doing a lot of teaching up to this point, just about I mean, in a certain sense, we've just been teaching about Christian doctrine. Um, I hope we've been doing it in a, in a way which is encouraging and edifying to you. 
Um, but still it's been like on the side of just kind of explaining things. At this point, what I wanna do is I wanna tell you how to be deified, how to be divinized is another word, how to become, you know, we, we keep going back to this thing that, um, that Irenaeus and Athanasius and Martin Luther, and actually, actually uh, a lot of people have said that God became man to make man God, which reminds me, hey, brothers, I'm going to plug a book here. You didn't know this was coming. There's this book. It's called, um, this is published by Oxford University Press. It's called The Doctrine of Deification in the Greek Patristic Tradition. This is written in 2004. Um, by Norman Russell. And what this does is it gives the ancient um, Christian perspective on what it means to become God in life and nature, essentially. That's what the book is. It's by a guy named Norman Russell. I had lunch with him. Um, he's an amazing scholar. Um, he did his DPhil at Oxford. Um, but anyway, this book basically if you're ever curious about the Greek early, early Christian teaching on becoming God, this is the book you want to read. Um, it was preceded by a French scholar called Jules Gross, who wrote in 1938 a book called The Divinization of the Christian. Um, this was reprinted, this was translated from French and reprinted a few years ago. And there's another really interesting book that you might get a kick out of called Partakers of the Divine Nature. And it looks at it in the perspective of a bunch of different Christian traditions, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, uh, Wesleyan, Methodist, um, Calvinist even. So anyway, we've been talking about the, the, the teaching of this from the Bible and how it's kind of been articulated again and again up until our own time with C.S. Lewis and others. But what I want to talk to you about is how does this actually happen? Like, like, what are you supposed to do? Just kind of like, wait, you know, like here I am anytime. Or, you know, what do we do? I think all of us, know, based on what we talked about last week is that the first step in becoming the son of God is to be born as a son of God. And this is to be born again. This is to, the Bible calls it regeneration. But once you've believed in Christ, once you've been baptized into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now what? The process of deification started, but, but, but now what do we do? And I think this is a point where a lot of us can um, kind of lose hope. And you're like, yeah, well, you know, the doctrine's really nice, but like, what, what am I supposed to do now? What I want to do now is um, talk about two principles really quick, and these are based on two verses. And I'm going to move really fast here, okay? So you've got to get your, your pen moving fast, if you're the note-taking type. The first is 2 Corinthians 3.16. In this verse, uh, if you, I'm not going to use a volunteer now. Thanks for volunteering, but I'm going to move fast here, okay? Um, sorry, 2 Corinthians, Trevor, not first. So 2 Corinthians 3.16. This is one of my, this is probably my, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I know a song. I know a tune to this verse. I like to sing it to my daughter when she's falling asleep. Um, 
It says, whenever their heart turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Amen. So I would say that, you know, the first step to becoming what God is in life and in nature is to turn our heart to the Lord. Mm. And I don't know what that means to you. I'm in a way, I don't even know what it means to me, but I mean, doesn't that just sound nice? (laughs) Turn your heart to the Lord. Whenever the heart, when we turn our heart to the Lord, there's just something of a reorienting that takes place. You know, maybe our heart has been turned toward a lot of things. Maybe it's been turned, like me, I'm writing my PhD dissertation right now. Whenever my heart turns away from writing my dissertation and turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Something really happens when I turn my heart to the Lord. Whenever, you know, Katie, Lamb, you know, you're the ones I'm seeing on my screen right now. Um, But when your heart turns to the Lord, something happens on the inside. Something of, you know, that petrifying action of God into us. You know, if, you're, if we're not turned to the Lord, then we're not, we're not getting that pure flow that Gregory of Nyssa was talking about. But, you know, when we turn our heart to the Lord, something happens to our heart. Mm. The veil gets taken away. Right. So that's, that's the first thing. That's a principle. How you turn your heart to the Lord is something I'm going to talk about in Next one I want to talk about, Trevor will help me here, is Romans 8, 5, and 6. So Romans 8, 5, and 6 um, says, For those who are according to the flesh mind the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, and then in Greek, well, this word doesn't exist, but it implies they mind the things of the Spirit. And then the verse six says, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. So the first step is we turn our heart to the Lord. And the next step is we mind, we mind the things of the spirit. We set our mind on the spirit. And the result is that we get life and we get peace. And we saw earlier, who is life? God is life. Jesus said in, in John 14, 16, I am the way, the reality, and the life. So when we Amen. set our mind on the spirit, we get the very life of God in a, in a literal way. We set our mind. Again, I'm not sure what that means to you, but I think we all have a sense that there is a, there is a decisive decision that we make to turn our mind away from other things and to reorient it squarely on Jesus. We set our mind on the spirit and turn our hearts to the Lord. So then the question is, well, okay, well, if we do that, we get the divine element of God. We get the divine nature of God in our being and we become what Christ is. But then the question is, so how do we turn our heart to the Lord? How do we set our mind on the spirit? Well, there's, there's a verse here, 1 Thessalonians 5.16, mm. or maybe 5.17. Um, 
this may be the most frustrating verse in the Bible. Um, lamb, what is, not only is it the shortest verse in the Bible, but it's the most difficult verse in the Bible. How does it go? Unceasingly pray. Easy, right? You just don't stop praying. Unceasingly pray. Okay, there's this book. I'm in the book recommending mode right now. This, this book, believe it or not, was a bestseller about 60 years ago. It was way before my time. It's called The Way of a Pilgrim. It's translated by French, a guy named R.M. French. But the book is actually anonymous. Nobody knows who wrote it. They only know that it was written in Russia uh, after the Crimean War, and probably before the, night, before the 1860s. But this anonymous Russian author writes a story, and the, the story is actually autobiographical. And the story is based on this man's individual, personal, burning frustration with this verse. This man traveled all the way through Russia. He was actually lame. He had a hard time getting around, but he found a way. He traveled through Russia asking people, because he heard it one day. He went, he went to a Christian gathering. This portion was read, unceasingly pray. And he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Paul meant that, and I don't know what it means. And well, actually, the problem is, is I know what it means, and I don't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. So he actually went on this trip across Russia, all the way over to Irkutsk, which is in far eastern Russia. Mm. He goes on this journey. And along the way, he asks people, what does Paul mean? And how does Paul expect me to unceasingly pray? So a large part of this story is just kind of building up to the answer. So I'm kind of, I'm not going to give away the book because I think this is a book that I would, that I think a lot of you would enjoy reading. It's available for free on the internet, by the way, in PDF, it's out of print, I think. Um, the Way of a Pilgrim. But this is, this is, finally, he finds this old man. It's actually early in the book. Um, but, you know, there's, there's some other stuff that happens. And he says this, um, he finds this old man and he says, um, um, he says, I've been hearing about this verse for years. Nobody's given me any answers. Do you know the answer? And the man said this, he said, listen, the reason nobody talks about this verse very, very much is because nobody knows how to do it. And you'll find a lot of people who talk about prayer, they talk a lot about things, but nobody will be able to teach you how to do this. And then he says, but I'll give you a secret. I know how to do it, and I'm going to help you to do it too. So the author of this book, this anonymous author, says, um, says okay, what's the secret? And he says this. Um, he, he says, this is the prayer of Jesus. He calls it the prayer of Jesus. He says, um, he says the continuous, he calls it the continuous interior prayer. The continuous interior prayer of Jesus is a constant, uninterrupted calling upon the divine name of Jesus mm. with the lips 
in the heart. Mm. The continuous interior prayer of Jesus is a constant, uninterrupted calling upon the divine name of Jesus with the lips. Actually, I forgot one part. With the lips, in the spirit, in the heart. Hmm. And then it says, it says some other things here. While forming a mental picture of his constant presence, this doesn't mean like imagining the face of Jesus. It just means forming, like just feeling yourself with the, with the, the presence, with, with Christ's constant presence and imploring his grace during every occupation at all times, in all places, even during sleep. <laughs> and then, and then this old man said, oh, I love this. He says, this appeal is couched in these terms. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And then he said, he says this, one who accustoms himself to this appeal, to this prayer, experiences as a result so deep a consolation and so great a need to offer this prayer always that he can no longer live without it. Mm. And it will continue to voice itself within him of its own accord. And then the old man turns to the anonymous author and says, now do you understand what prayer without ceasing is? <laughs> and, the, and he says, yes. And in God's name, teach me how to do it. That's, that's, that's literally what is see right here. <laughs> um, and then anyway, at that point, this old man says, well, actually, what I'm teaching you here is actually something that the fathers of the church have been teaching since, since the fourth century. And uh, so anyway, this is what I just want to impress on you. The first way to turn our heart to the Lord and to set our mind on the spirit is to pray repetitively by calling on the name of Jesus. And I've, I have practiced this. When I lived in England, there, my wife and me and another couple who lived not far away, we decided to, to call on the Lord's name repeatedly for a month for a month. So every time I walked from our house into Oxford, I would call on the name of the Lord repeatedly, nonstop. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ. And then the second part of the prayer was really touching. Have mercy on me, a sinner. It's like a crescendo. Lord Jesus Christ. And we see who Christ is. And when we see who Christ is, we see who we are. Have mercy on me, as in it. It has this beautiful balance. So um, anyway, this is a, and actually you can shorten this prayer. And if you're going to shorten it, I recommend you pray the first part, not the last part. Um, but just Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's name is the best prayer. Amen. And when we call that name repeatedly, like he says, in the spirit, in the heart, with the lips. That listen, man, I could take over a week at these sessions. I could just 
read this thing. But the main thing is when you when we call this name, the essence of that person, the substance of Christ comes with the name. It, it makes us what he is. Mm. So the way that we become divine, the way that we become God and life in the nature, but not in the Godhead, is simply by praying unceasingly, Lord Jesus Christ. That prayer is sufficient. Katie, I don't know if you've ever done that. Lamb, maybe you've heard about it before, but what if you tried it again as if you've never heard about it in your whole life? Amen. Can you imagine what this would do to your life, to my life? People have been doing this for, for 2,000 years. I don't know why we Christians don't talk about it much anymore. I think we really missed something crucial. Hmm. Okay, the second thing, I'm going to move a lot faster now. And Trevor and Nathaniel hold me to that, okay? Okay. Um, the second thing I want to say is um, we repeat the Lord's name. The other thing we can do is repeat the Lord's word. So later in the same book, um, later in the same book, um, this man is talking with somebody else, and he says this. Um, this other man says this. He says, uh, the way to receive the divine light. We were talking about the divine light earlier, right? God is light. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. He says, the way to attain spiritual light is... It, and become a man of recollected interior life. That is, you have an inner life with the Lord. You should, okay, listen to this. Write this down, people. Okay, please. You should take some one text or other of Holy Scripture and for as long a period as possible, concentrate on that alone all your power of attention and meditation. As long a period as possible, concentrate on that portion of scripture with all of your power of attention and meditation. Then the light of understanding will be revealed to you. And then he says this, he says, actually, this is prayer. He says, you must proceed in the same way about prayer if you want your prayer to be pure, right, and enjoyable, you must choose some short prayer, some short prayer consisting of few but forcible words and repeat it frequently and for a long while. So listen, all of you who are watching this, Take your favorite verse. I don't care what that verse is. Take your favorite verse, commit it to memory, and then concentrate all your power of attention and meditation on it. Mm. And repeat it frequently for a long while. Just try that. Try that. Try that today. Like, try that tonight. Like, the last thing you do before you get too tired, don't check Facebook. Don't check WhatsApp. You know, don't cuddle Magnus, your cat. Open your Bible and find a verse that you love and you treasure 
and just repeat it for 10 minutes. See what would happen. Mm. Just find, and then when you do that, you'll find that the best part of it is like the Lord will enlighten it. Mm. And then you just stay there. As long as there's light coming out of that bit, you repeat it, you repeat it, you repeat it. Then you'll know what David meant when he said, how sweet are your words to my taste. Mm. Sweeter even than honey to my mouth. Yeah. So anyway, I, I just wanted to bring these two points to you. I originally had a lot of other points I wanted to talk about, but I'm just going to stick with these two. They're both from this Russian guy who was learning these things from the history of the church. But just call on the name of the Lord. Oh, and, and this is how I call. I call, Oh, Lord Jesus Christ. I like to put Christ on there. Some people just say, Oh, Lord Jesus. I like, Oh, Lord Jesus Christ. That just, oh, that just turns my heart to the Lord. And the other thing I like to do is take these bits of verses and just repeat them forcefully and concentratedly for a mm. period of time. And these two things, I do not know, honestly, I do not know what my life would be like without these two things. Right. Um, so how, so, you know, I started this segment with what, you know, what is, um, Practically, how do we get deified, deified, you know, becoming God in life and nature? How does that actually happen? Listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, pray unceasingly using the name of Jesus and just repeat some, some delicious little segments of the honeycomb Bible. Just, and uh, you will find that your life will change. And actually, that's one of the points in this book. Is he, he says, eventually he says, say the Lord's name with your heart 3,000 times a day, and then eventually 6,000 times a day, then 9,000, then 12,000 times a day. And what he said is, when you do this, he said, he said, when you do this, all the virtues of Christ will become your virtues simply by saying his name. Mm. He says, actually, repeating the name of Jesus is the mother of virtues. So do you want to be full of love? Do you want to be full of peace? Do you, are you tired of judging people? Are you, are you tired of, like, outbursts of anger when people things don't go your way? Just repeat the name of Jesus prayerfully. Just, how, I don't know, however you want to do it. It doesn't matter. You can say the words backwards for all I care. Just for Jesus Christ, when you do that, you will get the Lord Jesus Christ himself as love, as Amen. light, as joy, as peace, as, as love, as brotherly love, as patience, as righteousness, as magnanimity. I mean, as all kinds of things. And we will become, by his name, we will become what he is. Hmm. This has been proven for hundreds of years in the church, brothers and sisters. We don't have to reinvent the wheel here. Right. It's not like we have to go back and like go to the top of the mountain in China or something. No, we could just, I mean, we, we have the way. And honestly, I'm still struggling with this. I am working on this. This is a spiritual exercise. It's a spiritual discipline. But I know that, that it works because because I've seen it work in people around me.
And I've even seen it work in me because I, I love my neighbors now. It's because I've been enjoying the name of Jesus. <laughs> All right. So um, I think at this point, kind of based on what I've been saying about like our real life and how our real life and our practice intersects with these really grand, high, like amazing Christian truths, we're going to move to a poll now. All right. This is kind of a, a kind of a diagnostic poll is to help you be kind of honest with yourself and honest with the Lord. This is going to be a really good opportunity. And, um, and Nathaniel is going to introduce us to this poll. And it's going to be private. Um, but I think it's going to be helpful to you. Take it away. Yeah, uh, just when you take the poll, don't be introspective. Uh, just consider what your situation is. It's actually, uh, it is helpful for us because we can potentially address some things going forward, but it's primarily for you all to consider. Okay. And uh, I'll turn it back over to Trevor. Okay, this is, this is gonna be our last point and then we're gonna actually open it up for, for questions um, or, or clarification and hopefully uh, we don't, do a really bad job at that um which means actually if you need it to be clarified that means we didn't do a good job in the first place so that's fine um our goal is that you walk away knowing this okay so the one of the one of the main things that i find um that i personally struggle with and that um a lot of the students and my friends and well, and everybody that I'm surrounded by struggles with, um, is, is the fact that you see, you can see in the Bible that, that the goal, the bar that we're trying to hit is perfection, okay? And it's not your personal perfection, but be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It is perfection according to God's standard which is himself. Um, when you see that, and when you, when you know that you need to obtain that, um, for one, when you look at yourself, you get very introspective. And what we mean by that is you just look inwardly, you start condemning yourself. I come so short, I'll never make it, all this stuff, okay? It's, it's basically a playground for Satan. Um, one of the worst things that we can do is compare. Uh, absolutely nothing positive ever comes out of comparing. You either puff yourself up or you beat yourself up. So I'm better at this than that person, so I'm puffed up. Or this person's better at everything than I am and I'm just a horrible Christian and I'm not useful, blah, 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 okay? And then you start beating yourself up. So one one thing this is just practical advice that we really wanted to address um for your for yourselves moving forward um and and one of the one of the main things is that has to do with you personally so if you're a very introspective person okay and you're constantly like oh is that the lord am i being natural and oh my gosh like you know we we basically 
uh, a lot of times when you when you touch um, what we have uh, from a knowledge standpoint, we can we can really uh, it, it can really be not really great for your brain. Um, so that being said, one one phrase that you guys have to remember forever, okay, is be who you are until you're different. This is for an introspective person, by the way. Okay, if you're not an introspective person, then don't take that phrase. But an introspective person needs to be who they are until they're different. And I want to add a little thing there. You got to be who you are. You have to eat Christ until you're different. You can't just be who you are until you're different. Sit around and play video games and like, I don't know why I'm not different. Okay. <laughs> you got you to gotta, you gotta do the thing that, that Nathan was talking about. Where it, really, really, if you want to sum up everything that Nathan just said, you could just say that you have to be in direct contact with God all the time. Yeah. It, however, you end up doing that. Um, that that is what needs to happen. You and him need to have contact. Um, then, then what what ends up happening is not only for ourselves personally, but then corporately. Okay, uh, we start looking at saints who are older than us, who who um, are more mature in life than us. And when, whenever they mess up, oh man, we become the judge, the jury, and the executioner all rolled up into one. And so basically, basically, this, this is interesting because you have to realize that the vision that we have is higher than the practice that we have. Okay. So what, and this, that's another phrase that really helped me. I remember a brother saying that once the vision is higher than the practice. And I was just like, Oh man, that's, that's really helpful. If you're hanging out with a bunch of Christians that they're actually meeting their vision, they're actually hitting it. Okay. I would jump out of that ship as fast as possible. Okay. Cause I don't want to be around anybody who is actually able to do the Christian life. Okay. Cause if you're actually able to do it, I don't know. I guess you're God. Okay. So you've already, you've already been trained. You don't even need to be glorified at that point. You know, you don't need a glorified body. You're just God. You're Jesus. Okay. So that, that is one thing that our, our truth that we have is mind blowing. It has a universal scope and impact. It's huge, but the application is very simple. It, the application is very, very simple. Right. Okay. Um, and it takes place, this whole, this whole process takes place in an imperfect environment. Okay. So I, I don't know if many of you have heard messages on how we need to be a visionary and not an idealist. Okay. Um, that's something that you should really look into if, if, by the way, guys, I am, I wish I could put a mirror. Actually, I kind of am. I'm kind of looking at myself on my screen. Like it is, you got it, man, I am just the worst. Okay, so I am constantly uh, in, in a judgmental state, which actually I will be judged by the same. Anyway, we've gone over that a different week, but I'm constantly in that state of, of comparing, of why can't anybody do this? Why can't anybody do that? Okay, and the, the thing is, the thing is that person, I have to respect 
the fact that that person is a different portion than me, okay, they can actually do things that I can't. And so a lot of times we look at highly respected brothers who are very mature. Why can't everybody be like them? Because they're not supposed to be, okay? They're actually not supposed to be. So you might, you know, sometimes I, I wish, sometimes I wish like, well, why couldn't there be like 10 Ron Kanguses, okay? Well, they're not supposed to be 10 Ron Kanguses. There's only one, okay? And so that's, that's something that, that we, we compare someone to him or we compare someone, you know what I'm saying? The comparing thing is not a good road to go down. Okay, now the last thing is, is we grow at the speed of life. Okay, you got to write that one down, Paul Brown. Okay, we grow at the speed of life. Paul, Paul, you're not even, you're not even unmuted. Unmute Paul now. Unmute Paul. Paul, what in the world does that phrase mean? Growing at the speed of life. Oh. Paul's confused. Paul is still on mute. There you go, Paul. I, I'm, I, I'm you're I? good. I um, can hear you. Sorry, what was the question after that? Paul, when I when I say growing at the speed of life, what does that mean? Um, growing as as life comes at you, I guess. Well, it's the speed of, speed of life. Yeah, right. So you live your life and your day to day, your maximum hundred and twenty years, right? And uh, you, as as things happen to you, you you take them and you you try and grow through them and. Uh, Pray that God doesn't burden you with too much in one go. <laughs> okay. So what's growing, Paul, based on stuff that we've been talking about in the past? Uh, it'll be uh, increasing in uh, partaking of the divine nature. Yeah, bro. So we're, we're partaking of the divine nature, and that is growing in us, right? And that, that growth, that growth is at the speed of life. I can't speed it up, Paul. I can slow it down for sure. Mm. I can do things to slow it down. Yeah. But if I'm constantly contacting the Lord, okay, the verse in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 says, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, and God caused the growth. Paul, right. can you cause the growth? No. No, God causes the growth. Can you speed it up? No. No. Can you slow it down? Yes. Yeah. So this is the thing I can, uh, an apple tree, if I, if uh, this is what it really means, if I plant an apple tree, can I speed up the growth of that apple tree or is it going to grow at the speed of the life of the apple tree? Yeah. Right. That's, that's what it means. We grow at the speed of life. Right. So the life that we received, I can't, I can't like, I can't get mad at myself because I'm not so mature yet, mm -hmm. you know? You understand what I'm saying? Like, why, why can't I, why can't I be as mature as that brother? Why can't I have as much weight when I'm speaking as that brother? It's because that brother has grown at the speed of life and he's been around longer than you. Mm. Okay. And so he's, he's had this direct contact with the triune God longer than you. And so when he speaks, he has more weight than you do. Mm. Okay. So these are, these are just little phrases that I, that I find very, very helpful moving forward when, when I'm with the other believers, when I'm with myself, 
there's so many things with the knowledge that we have that we can start judging ourselves, judging others, judging all this kind of stuff.